you would turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the Gospel according to John. That's John's Gospel and chapter 1. This morning, we read only verse 29. That's John chapter 1 and verse 29. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Friend, the text in front of us this morning, of course, is famous. In fact, it's perhaps one of the most famous exclamations in all of Scripture. And it's one that's so easily intoned, it's one that, that just is riven through with, with poetic themes. Behold the Lamb of God. Friend, I would submit to you that just like so many other familiar texts of Scripture, this text, too, has profound elements Uh, Indeed, in many ways, it it gives to us, in short form, a summary of God's saving work that I think so often we read the words but don't appreciate their depth. And so this morning, I want us to spend our time considering just this text, though so familiar to us. And the first thing I think that we need to keep before us as we seek to understand these words is its broader context. And so allow me to remind you just very briefly what we found before. As I've said already, that these latter portions of the first chapter of John's Gospel, they're they're devoted to show us, now in point of history, the theological ideas that John introduced to us in the first 14 verses. And what do I mean by that? Well, you remember that John has already communicated to us that John the Baptist was sent as God's solemn testimony bearer. In other words, he is the one who is sent by God. He was sent to bear witness to the incarnate word. And in these latter portions, really from verses 15 and following, John shows us that John the Baptist was faithful in his calling. You remember in verses 15 to 18, we find the content of that testimony. This is John's preaching of Christ in which he sets before us the reality that all the grace that God's people enjoy is from Christ as drawn from a fountain. And then as we saw last week, verses 19 to 28, John clearly communicates also his own identity. He gives to us first the content of his testimony and then he shows us that he's clear in his own, his own place. You remember that in those lines preceding our text this morning, there were two deputations that were sent. John. And, and the scene that these verses really paint for us, it's a striking scene. You have John standing there as he had on the banks of the Jordan. And from Jerusalem come two commissions, one from the Pharisees, one from the Sadducees, uh, as it were, a, a coalition of, of church and state. The first commission, presumably in front of John's congregation, They ask him, who are you? Who are you? The second deputation comes and they ask, and really they they tacitly rebuke, rebuke John, 
by saying, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? But friend, as I, as I mentioned to you last time we were together, there's something awkward, yes. There, there's something profound, yes. But there's also something incredibly, incredibly disheartening about all of this. Because John shows us that in this scene, as the Baptist is confronted with these two deputations, in the background you see Christ. And so what's so very clear in these first lines is that though Christ has already been publicly declared to be the Son, though John has already borne witness that this is He who was coming, that that John was sent to prepare the way for, that though this Christ was among them, these lines intimate that they missed Him. And that, that, that here... Christ is looking on as these deputations clearly are fixated on the messenger more than on Christ himself. They've missed it. That's the point. The deputations have missed it. And so, friend, when you come to our text this morning, verse 29, we can't forget that. When you come to the 29th verse, we're told immediately that what what follows is what took place immediately after these deputations had confronted John. The very next day, John sees Christ coming to him. And then he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Friend, I want you to notice, first of all, that this is an opportunity that John the Baptist has to reorient the focus. This is not just direction, this is correction. John is reminding people who they are to be fixated upon. And so you could read the words legitimately like this, Behold the Lamb of God. You're fixated on me, the messenger, the voice in the wilderness, but behold the Lamb instead. That's the first element of this. But the second that we can't miss either is that In this moment, John not only offers correction, he also offers us something new. So far, we've seen that John's testimony has highlighted primarily two themes. We've highlighted, first of all, that Christ was coming as king over his church and who would baptize his people with the substance of grace, not just the outward form. And we've also seen, too, that he would come as a judge. He would come to his own threshing floor and he would work what was righteous. He would purge his floor. But when we come to this text, John has now added a third theme to his testimony. Behold the Lamb of God. It's striking is the word Lamb of God occurs only in the Gospel of John. The phrase, I mean, you'll find it nowhere else in sacred scripture. The Lamb of God is unique to this Gospel. And I want you to notice, not only is this idea there, but what's so profound is John has transitioned from the idea of Christ coming as rightful heir and judge in the church. And in this simple phrase, he's moved from judge to sacrifice. This is the first time so far that we've seen this in John's preaching. But the question you and I have to ask this morning is, what did this mean? What did it mean to those who, of course, heard it initially? What did it mean as as John preached it, as he was the Spirit's, Spirit's voice? 
And I suppose immediately to answer that question, our minds go to the texts like Isaiah 53. Of course, that text being the most prominent. And admittedly, there are so many themes that come to mind as parallels. Of course, in Isaiah 53, you have the idea of a man made like a lamb, a man offered as a sacrifice, and that man as Jehovah's servant. All of those themes, of course, parallel everything that John has just said in this 29th verse. But it still raises the question, because Isaiah 53 is, of course, drawing upon images and themes itself. So so the question still remains, what, what does this really mean? And what did it mean to those who were there on the banks of the Jordan and who heard it in the first place? Well, friend, the first thing that you and I are helped with as we seek to answer that question is, of course, the phrase that follows. And that is that this lamb is to take away the sin of the world. And so, friend, we're not talking here about lambs in general. John is not directing us to think about the symbolism that pertains to that particular creature, even though, of course, the meekness, the gentleness, and the purity of lambs you'll see referenced throughout. No, we're not looking primarily at the lamb, but we're looking at the lamb and his function. In other words, we're looking at the lamb as sacrifice, as atonement, as something to avert wrath, as propitiation. And so, friend, we're looking here at John telling us pointedly that the one whom he indicates who is coming to him now is the fulfillment of that lamb that was offered in sacrifice to God for millennia. Now, I suppose scholars for millennia, have also sought to ascertain what particular sacrifice John had in view. And all kinds of theories are propounded, the paschal lamb, the, the, the lamb particularly for the day of the atonement, the daily sacrifice, morning and evening, the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, etc., etc. What's staggering is, though so many throughout the history of the church have, have specified um, what particular lamb John has in view, John doesn't. Uh, John's the only one who doesn't do that. And friend, I think there's a basic reason why he doesn't specify for us what particular sacrifice or particular lamb he has in view. It's because here John is telling us that Christ is the antitype, the fulfillment of all of those sacrifices. He is, beloved, the one to which they all pointed in unison. And so John has said very pointedly, this is the one the one who would offer once for all sacrifice for sin. And so John here, as he gives this as an exhortation, he turns to his congregation, and perhaps the deputations are still there. He turns to them and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, and see in him the fulfillment of all of the ceremonies, all of the rituals that that indicated atonement, see him as the one who fulfills them all. It's an exhortation. And beloved, for you and for me, the entailment is so very basic, isn't it? John here is reminding us that men must receive Christ as the only saving sacrifice. 
men must receive Christ as the only saving sacrifice. And I want us to consider that as this 29th verse carries it to us, I want us to see this, first of all, in terms of its provision. Its provision. Secondly, the procurement of the saving work. And finally, the proficiency of Christ's sacrifice. Again, the three headings there are provision, procurement, and proficiency. And so, friend, take first of all the provision of the Lamb. Now, as you look at the text in the original, it's quite clear. What John is saying is, this is God's Lamb. Or, if you like, this is the Lamb of God's provision. This is the Lamb brought by God. And, and I suppose, friend, in our world, in, in the evangelical context in which you and I subsist, we, we know that. It's one of those truisms that we simply, we simply acknowledge with, with a nod of the head and we proceed. But, but what John has said here is something that's so very profound and would have struck the congregation. Let me illustrate this just for a moment. Just two texts. And, and note the parallels between the two. Moses, as God's mouthpiece, tells the children of Israel, draw out and take you, a lamb according to your families, and kill the Passover. And then the prophet Isaiah to Moab says this, he says, send ye the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah to the wilderness, unto the mount of the daughter of Zion. Do do you see what both Moses and Isaiah are saying? For atonement, you... Take a lamb out of your flocks and you bring them to God for atonement. But in this single simple phrase, what has John done? He's turned the whole thing on his head. Before sinners brought a lamb to God, now God brings a lamb to atone for sinners. Do you see that, friend? In a simple, simple phrase. John says, instead of all of your lamb bringing, instead of, instead of thinning your own herds, here God in this moment is bringing his own lamb. For thousands of years, for thousands of years, you've come to God, bringing your own, your own flock for atonement. Here God brings his own, his own lamb to atone for your sins. Beloved, it's a staggering statement. It's a reversal that would be quite profound, and it should be profound, because, beloved, in this text, you and I are reminded, reminded that all of those sacrifices for millennia, though the thousands upon thousands of beasts that were killed when when Solomon dedicated the temple, and and all of the lambs that were offered from, from really from the Garden of Eden right through, none of them were sufficient. That's what this text is telling us. God must bring His own Lamb. He must provide His own Lamb. If atonement is to be made, if His justice is to be satisfied. And beloved, if Israel and all of her workings and all of her devotions and bringing all of her sacrifices for the millennia was insufficient, then beloved, you and I are to know in this text also, John is telling us pointedly, no man... No man could ever atone himself, could perform what only the Lamb of God could do. 
What's so staggering, friend, is in this, sim- in this simple phrase, John is exhorting his congregation to see that all of salvation must be found in him. And beloved, because this is the Lamb of God we're talking about, because this is the singular sacrifice that God alone would provide, there is an exclusionary sense to it. What I mean by this is that John here is reminding us that this is God's Lamb and so only He is to be received as the ultimate and saving sacrifice. To put it another way, friend, in this, in this phrase, you have a clarion call for men to leave off all other means of reconciliation with God and to take only God's offering in His Son. To receive Christ, then, beloved men, must renounce all other saviors. We've already seen this in John's ministry. Beloved, the first thing is that men are called to renounce their own visible privileges and their own work in the ordinances of the gospel. Genuinely, that's what, the, that's what John the Baptist preaches. As, as you remember in Matthew 3, the Pharisees come and, and John turns to them and he says very pointedly, we have Abraham to our father, you boast. But don't, says John. Your privileges and all that that involves. Your, your status in the visible church. Your being under the ordinances of the gospel. Those things of themselves are insufficient. You have no grounds in them to boast because they could never do what this only, only lamb from God could. And beloved, you remember as the Apostle Paul reminds us with regard to the generation to come. This was the very call that Israel refused to receive. When at last they cried, crucify him, crucify him, beloved, it was the visible church underage that did thus. They established their own righteousness, unwilling to submit to the righteousness of God. And friends, so many in our own land need to hear this afresh. And we need ourselves to be reminded of it. When these words, behold the Lamb of God, come forward, they are calls to renounce any other means to reconciliation with God but Christ. Your keeping of the ordinances of the gospel, your sitting painfully under sermons, You're laboring, whether for the physical or the other needs of the church. The first thing that this call urges you to do is to renounce those works as a means to reconciliation with God. But that's not all that John does. He goes a step further. Because not only does he say that they're not to boast in their external privileges, he really goes, goes all the way to strike at the very heart of the problem. You remember how he addresses that particular deputation in Matthew 3. He says, O oh, generation of vipers. Oh, friend, that's a staggering, a staggering way of addressing such men as he was. He was turning to the church and he says, you are a generation of vipers. That is, you have come from the serpent. 
your constitution, as it were, within is that which is serpentine. It is more alike to the devil than to God. And so, friend, for anyone to receive that kind of preaching, they have to first acknowledge that what John has said of them is true. They have to acknowledge first and foremost that they are in fact serpentine. That they are in fact, by nature, children of the devil. And they are doing the works of their father. That they have a disposition, an inclination of rebellion against God. And so, friend, when John says, Behold the Lamb, he is saying, Also acknowledge this, that you need him, because you are, in fact, such a generation. You are, in fact, such a generation. And, beloved, that reminds us, doesn't it, just how low the gospel door is, how far you and I are called to stoop in order to lay hold of Christ. Christ receives none but those who see themselves in this way, who have renounced all of their own righteousness and who are pleased to submit to the righteousness that is offered only in Christ. And beloved, if if what I've said to you here, though common, sounds easy, friend, you've not exercised yourself in the work. Because this is by far the most mortifying work that the soul will engage in. To renounce your best deed. Even as a Christian, to say that there is enough sin in my prayer, as John Bunyan did, to condemn me to the fires of hell. To say that I have merited of myself nothing, no good thing from God. And that if I have any good standing with God, it is only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, that that has incredible ramifications for how you view yourself. And beloved, in this text, we're reminded that that's precisely the work that Christ calls men to in his overtures of the gospel. To genuinely condemn yourself in your best moment. And see that in your best moment you stand in infinite need of Christ. The Lamb whom God alone has provided. To illustrate this, friend, allow me me to draw your attention back just for a moment to Genesis 22. Many would say that Genesis 22 is really behind John the Baptist's thoughts in this text. You remember, you remember as, as Isaac and as Abraham are going up the mount... Isaac turns to his father and he says, here's the wood, here's the fire, where's the sacrifice? Abraham's reply is, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And so he says thus, he says, so they both of them went up together. And you remember, friend, that Isaac, though adolescent, submitted to being bound, placed on that altar stayed on that altar as his father raised the dagger. And then God interrupted the whole thing. And God, in fact, provided the lamb. 
Behind, behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by its horns, and Abraham offered him up for a burnt offering instead of his son. It's a dramatic picture, but I'm, I'm drawing that back to your mind just for a moment to illustrate this point. Beloved, in many ways, when the soul is brought to comply with Christ, they see themselves like Isaac bound and rightfully under the dagger of divine judgment. But then when the gospel comes out, they find that God himself has provided a lamb in their stead. When they ought to have been the holocaust, the whole burnt offering, Christ was offered in their place. And friend, that's the idea behind this call. The congregation needs the lamb of God's provision. And if they don't have him, they are rightfully to be consumed under divine judgment. And the soul that then closes with this Christ is a soul that has been taught, even by experience, both their own, their own guilt and that Christ indeed has been offered in their place. And so the first question this morning is, have we so seen Christ? Have we so seen Christ as the Lamb of God's provision? And have we so then renounced all other saviors? But that brings us to the second point. And the second point is the procurement of salvation in Christ. Now as you look at the text, we're told here that this is the Lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. It's staggering because you could translate it, I think, believe most of our texts probably have the marginal note, beareth, that he beareth away the sins of the world. And what you find here, friend, is that this is a clear picture that Christ has become the sin bearer. He has become the sin bearer for his people. That's what John is saying. But I want you to notice, friend, that this is not prophecy. I want you to notice that he says this in the present tense. And it's a staggering thing. He's not saying that Christ will bear the sin of his people. He's saying that Christ is, as he sees him coming to him on the banks of the Jordan, he is then the sin bearer. It's a staggering thing. And beloved, if he is already the sin bearer in this moment, at, at this point in his ministry, you and I now have a clear explanation as to why he's the man of sorrows his whole life through. You and I have an explanation then as to why, why the apostle would say as he does in Hebrews 9 that Christ appeared the first time with sin, that is sin imputed to him. In his appearing, he appeared as the sin bearer. He was a man of sorrows because from his very incarnation, he was the sin bearer, who even as John here tells us, was bearing the sin of his people at that moment at the banks of the Jordan. Friend, what I just said to you, I think we've lost in our own thinking about Christ. But allow me just to remind you that this is something that's part and parcel of our right thinking of the Savior and of his earthly ministry. George Smeaton put it this way. He says, Sin was not first imputed to him or borne by him when he hung on the cross. 
but in and with the assumption of man's nature. Not a single moment of the Lord's earthly life can be conceived of in which he did not feel the burden of divine wrath. Another man even before him, Jonathan Edwards, put it this way, Christ's satisfaction for sin was not by his last sufferings only. All his sufferings and all humiliation from the first moment to his resurrection were propitiatory or satisfactory. He was the sin bearer in this moment. And beloved, what does that mean? Oh, that's so profound. Because John has just said to this congregation, Behold the Lamb of God. But he may be anticipating an objection. Where is he? He doesn't look like much. I don't see anything in him that would indicate that this one is specially sent by God. To which John's reply in this text is so clear. Behold the Lamb of God. See Him as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Do you see Him there who has no beauty or comeliness that we should desire or delight in Him? Do you see in Him there a man who is capable of bleeding, who is hungry, who is capable of all kinds of weakness, who has come in the weakness of sinful flesh, yet without sin? Do you see Him there in such a state? Well, friend, he looks so because he is the sin bearer. He looks so because there you find the man, the God man, who would bear away the sins of his people. There you see his whole life through, beloved of the just, suffering for the unjust. In all of his poverty, all of his weakness, all of the derision and all of the hatred that he faced. Beloved, there you see the sin bearer doing the work of satisfaction. And so when John says, behold him as he is the sin bearer, what what does that intimate for you and for me? Friend, just briefly, John urges us to see Christ in his humiliation as he is taking upon himself this work. And friend, we we could exhaust our time this morning thinking about why that would be, but just allow me to raise three basic reasons. The first reason is, and the scriptures hold this out to us clearly, we are to look at Christ's sufferings and all of his sufferings so as to induce our own mourning. This is something I think we've often lost, but, but this is precisely how the prophet Zechariah brings it to us. When we think of the sufferings of Christ and especially their culmination at Calvary, John says, those who are rightly acquainted with it, seeing it correctly, here's their response. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. In other words, friend, these are those who when they see Christ's sufferings, again, principally at Calvary, but inclusive of all, when they see his sufferings, they're induced to mourn as they have pierced them with their own sin. And beloved, do you see this so clearly given to us in Acts 2? Peter preaches to that congregation, Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And when they heard this, they were pricked in the heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Beloved, the first thing that you and I are to be mindful of as we see Christ 
In this veil of humiliation, as we see him his whole life through offering satisfaction for sin, you and I are to say he was made such a man of sorrows because of my sin. And beloved, our readings of the gospel, I think, would be so different and transformative if we did so. Could we read? Friend, could we read about all that he faced at Calvary and before, with eyes dry and unmoved hearts, knowing that he willingly and actively submitted to all as our sin bearer. Beloved, if we do, we'll be, we'll be brought to mourn for our sins in different ways. Not mourning because of the wrath that's due to them only mourning because of what it cost Christ. But secondly, friend, John would urge us to think of the humiliation of Christ so as to see its sufficiency in all things. You see, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 that, that unlike the world, when the church looks at Christ's satisfaction, and when especially they look at the culmination or the principal act of it being Calvary, while the world sees it as foolishness and a stumbling block, the church regards it as the power of God into salvation. They see, in other words, in Christ, in his work as sin bearer, the very power of God into salvation that this was a sufficient sacrifice to save souls, a manifestation of God's omnipotent and redeeming work. But thirdly and finally, friend, of course, this is to induce thanksgiving. It's to induce our praise. And beloved John, I think, communicates this to us so very clearly, doesn't it? Thinking of Christ, again, principally, but not exclusively of his sufferings at Calvary, he writes this. He says, in this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, that is the wrath-averting Savior for our sins. Friend, if you were if if you were to imagine just for a moment an opportunity to tally all of the debts that your mother and your father accrued to care for you from the moment from the moment of your conception right through perhaps to the moment of their passing if you were to tally all of the pains and, and all of the finances that went in to nurturing you, what do you, what do you think your response would likely be? My friend, I, I think if, if we're conscious, if we come from, a, from even a, a, a moderately loving father or mother, surely it would reduce us to tears. Surely we would see in that a depth of expense we've never fathomed before. Surely we would see in their tears and in their pains difficulties that they encountered on on your behalf and on mine that we never had imagined. 
My friend, how much more when you begin to tally what it took Christ and what pains Christ was at to redeem you? Should it not make us a humble people? Should it not fill us with joy that he loved us so much? We who have come to him by faith, that he was willing to be at such expense. And so, friend, when John says, look at the Lamb of God who is now sin-bearing, when you look at the Lamb of God who is now already a man of sorrows for the sake of His people, what is He saying? He's saying this so very pointedly. He's saying, see in Him that picture. That picture of what your sin deserved. And the lengths He was willing to go pull you out from its curse. See him in such a way. But friend, as we close, we come to our third and our final point. And that is that John here is clearly indicating the proficiency of the sacrifice as well. This sacrifice is able, and in fact does, take away the sin of the world. I've told you already, beloved, that that this is not prophetic. He doesn't tell us here that this is the Lamb of God who will take away. He's not thinking in the future sense. This is the Lamb of God that beareth away the sin of the world. But I want you to notice this too. It's not hypothetical either. He doesn't say that this is the Lamb of God who may bear away the sin of the world. And that produces a problem for some especially when we think of the word world. If we treat the word world there in its universal sense, that is, every man, woman, and child who will ever live, we only have, really, three options. And as we'll see in just a moment, really only one option. The first option is is that the word here, world, is actually mistaken. In other words, that that John really can't say that Christ is definitely bearing away the sins of all people, that that he really means hypothetically he's going to do this. In other words, and this is how it goes, really what this text is saying is, the Lamb of God has come that he may take away the sin of the world, provided people believe in him. And so, friend John then misspoke. John tells us he, in fact, does bear away the sin of the world. Not that he might. The second option that we have is that as souls are still punished for sin, and not just for unbelief, as Revelation 20 and verse 8 reminds us, then we run into another problem. Are those ones who are in hell, are they they paying for sins that have already been atoned for? In other words, are they, are they paying for sins, burning for sins now, that have already been borne away by Christ? Is this a kind of cosmic double jeopardy? So, friend, those first two options we obviously can't, we can't have. The only option available to us in understanding this text is this. That here the word world refers to a large and non-ethnically restricted body of people, namely to all of those 
who would in fact close with Christ and behold the Lamb of God as John here exhorts them to see him. In other words, friend, what you have here is John saying that this Lamb will take away the sins of his people and that this people is not only of Jewish descent. And friend, to illustrate that even more clearly, John here is drawing a comparison between the sacrifice that this lamb is and the sacrifices that they made in Jerusalem. You remember, friend, the Paschal Lamb and all the sacrifices, they all had special connection to Israel. The lamb was offered not for the nations in the Passover, but for Israel. The daily sacrifices in the temple, they were offered not for the Gentile world, but for Israel. But in this text, John tells us, here is a greater sacrifice, the lamb of God. The lamb of God's provision is one for all of the world. That is, those who are saved of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so, friend, the superiority of the sacrifice is so clearly in view. Beloved, as we look at this text, then what are we finding? Well, for ourselves, we're told here that the Lamb here actually makes atonement for all of God's people. He actually bears away their sin. He doesn't make it a possibility, depending on their free will. He actually bears away their sin, and even then. Now, for you and for me, friend, this has wonderful implications. It means here, beloved, that Christ Christ is a sufficient sacrifice. And beloved, though we have limited time, let me just remind you that in the fact that he alone bears away his people's sin, contingent upon nothing else but his own work, this shows us that all things terminated upon Christ's shoulders. John, sorry, Isaiah puts it to us this way. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him and his righteousness, it sustained him. All of redemption, says John, is found in him. All of redemption, says Isaiah, is wrought by his own arm. All dependent, contingent upon his work alone. And beloved, for the believer, that's precisely how Christ must be received. Everything upon his broad shoulders. All of redemption accomplished by him. He left nothing undone, says John. He actually takes away the sin of his people. He's left nothing, nothing undone. You see, friend, you can imagine, I suppose, a man rescued. Rescued from poverty, rescued from homelessness. But if he's not also provided the necessities of life, pulled out from that moment, the man's hardly rescued. Hardly rescued. And in our text, the rescue, the redemptive work of Christ is presented to us as a full redemption, where everything is paid for. We're not just brought out of poverty for a moment. Or or we're not brought out of poverty hypothetically. We are actually bought out of poverty by Christ's work. And he's left nothing, nothing, nothing to anyone else. He's purchased a full redemption himself for his own people. 
And so, beloved, as we close this morning, the first question of examination for us is, have we seen this lamb in this way? And and I would suppose, as I know this text is so famous, friend, many would say that they have. But it's right for us to assess ourselves too. Beloved, if, if we've seen this lamb in this way in light of all that we've set up to this point, surely, surely, we have a lively sense of debt. Surely we have a lively sense of the cost. The cost of our own redemption that was exacted on Christ. You see, in this simple verse, simple exclamation, John is reminded, reminded Israel, reminded her that she was utterly insufficient and she needed the incarnate word to become a holocaust for her. And that his whole life was a life lived as a man of sorrows because he was the sin bearer of his people. He was dropping blood from his incarnation and suffering to the moment just prior, well, just at Calvary culminating there, for her sake, for the sake of his own people. Surely that would induce a lively sense of their indebtedness to free grace. But if we have that lively sense, friend, then surely there is also evidence of that in our fruit bearing. Beloved, surely if if we are meditating much on Christ and what it cost him, what it was for him to become the lamb and the sin bearer on our behalf, surely, friend, you'll find yourself unable, unable to do too much for his sake. You'll take opportunities as they come to you thinking this is but a small token of an infinite debt of love. And surely I must pay what I can, though utterly insufficient of itself. And beloved, for our comfort, this text holds so much. Do you see the lengths of love that Christ had for his people? That again, from his incarnation, right through to the moment prior to his resurrection, he was pleased to be in a state of humiliation, to be a man of sorrows for your sakes, who have come to him by faith. And so, beloved, when you see him saying that foxes have holes, that, that the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has not where to lay his head, when like Jacob, the son of God was made, had made a pillow, his stone, a stone, his pillow rather. When he was truly a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That all of these things were for you, who are his people. Beloved, surely that should reduce us. Reduce us both to humiliation and fill us with joy. That such is our Christ. No husband has so loved his bride. No friend has so loved his own as Christ demonstrably has.
So the unconverted friend, this is a clarion call to pray and to seek, to behold him so. If you've not come to Christ, friend, this text urges us to see Christ in this way. And so, beloved, see sin's desert. See it as even though it came to the Son of God as he was only imputed his people's guilt, was not actually and personally guilty thereof. Yet nevertheless, it made him a man of sorrows and would make him at Calvary taste the very pains of the second death. Friends, see what sin deserves, but also see what grace is offered. This you also see in our text so clearly. But for those who are in Christ, friend, the implication of this simple text is this, that if he is made the Lamb of God, if he's made the sin-bearer, was his whole state of humiliation. Well, friend, this should only induce you and induce me to seek his praise and glory above all things. You remember how the Apostle Paul puts it in Second Corinthians 9, 8-9, rather. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. You see, Paul employs that as an argument for greater faithfulness on the part of the church at Corinth. He says this should spur Christians to greater faithfulness, thinking of the poverty and thinking of the effects of Christ's work as sin-bearer will induce them to greater faithfulness for his sake. And so, beloved, the exhortation for us is, is basic. Here is your love debt. You'll never be able to repay it, and the ages of eternity will never, will never exhaust its debt. But here, beloved, you have ample cause to labor thankfully for the work of grace done by the Lamb of God, who indeed taketh away the sin of the world. Amen.